Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes. On this episode, we'll be talking about face-to-face appointments and how national media campaigns and comments from MPs about access to general practice is affecting GPs and their teams. We'll be looking at the COVID-19 booster campaign and what this means for general practice this autumn, and we'll discuss the additional roles reimbursement scheme and ask, is it making a difference? Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to GP and menopause specialist Dr Louise Newson about improving menopause care and education for doctors and other health professionals. And finally, we've got a bit of good news about how a primary care network is taking some innovative steps to tackle climate change. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up today, the media storm around face-to-face appointments in general practice. Pressure on GPs about face-to-face appointments has ramped up again over the past month or so, with a string of comments from MPs and ministers and campaigns in the national media. This is echoes of what happened earlier in the pandemic and GPs' reactions to what they felt were unfair comments from NHS England about face-to-face access. We've spoken about the push from some quarters for GPs to offer face-to-face appointments as the default option on previous episodes of the podcast. But Nick, why has this come up again now? And what is it that's really sort of raising the temperature in this current media onslaught about face-to-face appointments? Access to -to face-to-face appointments has been a major theme in media coverage of general practice during the pandemic, as you've mentioned. But in recent weeks, this has stepped up again with newspapers calling or campaigning for a return to pre-pandemic levels of face-to-face appointments big part of what the, what's driving this seems to be the sense that with most of the population double jabbed and COVID rules largely scrapped, GP appointments ought to return to normal too. There are some cases of papers spinning what politicians have said, but this is a narrative being driven right from the top. Uh, Sajid Javid, the Health and Social Care Secretary, said himself in Parliament last week that it was high time GPs started seeing more patients face-to-face and that there was no reason this couldn't happen now, that life in the UK, in his words, is almost back to completely normal. If only that were true, but it self-evidently is not. There are 8,000 people in hospital with COVID-19, large numbers of deaths each day, the backlog of care is colossal and having a knock-on impact on GP workload. And after delivering tens of millions of COVID-19 jabs this year, GP-led teams are now embarking on another round of booster vaccinations for millions of people. Add to that the fact that nearly one in 10 school children were reportedly off school last week with COVID or suspected COVID. All that is definitely not normal. And GP leaders have been reminding the government that the profession has been forced to operate throughout this unprecedented period with a chronic GP shortage. The government's promised thousands more full-time equivalent GPs, but they have yet to materialise. And it's also worth remembering that the big shift towards remote consultations at the start of the pandemic in March 2020 came in response to direct advice from NHS England. It called for practices to adopt total triage, only seeing patients in person where absolutely necessary to to limit the spread of COVID-19. And GP practices then made this incredible change, transforming how they deliver a million appointments a day. But we also know that they've provided more than half of all appointments face-to-face throughout the pandemic, with many more millions of appointments for COVID jabs on top. The RCGP warned earlier this month that a barrage of vitriol had been aimed at GPs in the national press, and there's no escaping the impact that that's having on the profession's morale at a time when workload's more intense than ever. 
We've also reported repeatedly on the tide of abuse from patients and the public experienced by GPs and practice staff, which seems to be strongly linked to this negative coverage. And it seems completely self-evident that GPs deserve thanks and praise for the way they've responded to the pandemic. And it's devastating for the profession to feel that ministers and other senior figures don't have their back at a time when they're working harder than ever. It's also worth remembering, isn't it, that before the pandemic, uh, the government and NHS England were were very keen to push GP practices to deliver more appointments remotely and embrace virtual consultations because they thought that this would help alleviate some of the workload pressures. That's absolutely right. As, As recently as November last year, former Health and Social Care Secretary Matt Hancock said about half of GP appointments should continue to be provided remotely after the pandemic. And earlier in 2020, he used a major speech to say that all GP appointments should be remote unless there was a compelling clinical reason why they couldn't be. And that's very much at odds with the message coming out of the government at the moment. We know that many GPs are worried that these media campaigns are kind of leading to increased abuse of GPs and practice staff. You know, and we have talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast. But Luke, there was a particularly worrying incident last week in Manchester, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. Um, So on Sunday, last Sunday, Greater Manchester Police confirmed that a 59-year-old man had been charged with assault after reports of a disturbance at a GP practice in Openshaw, uh, Manchester, which resulted in four members of staff actually being injured. Uh, A leading GP in the area reported that the attack was carried out by a patient with staff suffering, quote, deep lacerations and one GP suffering a, a skull fracture. The um, the man, fifty nine year old man who appeared in court uh, this Monday, was um, also charged with malicious communication and a fray. And the BMA sent out a, a statement after the attack and said that it was truly horrified to hear about the incident and that it was part of a terrible trend of growing abuse, vitriol, and violence that is being directed towards um, healthcare workers. We obviously don't really know the complete particulars about that case and why that patient or person um, did what they did. But obviously, the BMA is really concerned about these rising incidences of abuse. And they've demanded a meeting with Sajid Javid about that and about the ongoing furore over face-to-face appointments, haven't they? Yes. So they sent a letter this week to the health secretary um, requesting an emergency summit with the government to discuss unacceptable levels of abuse faced by GPs and their teams. Um, In particular, the BMA, they're pushing for legal change to boost protection for healthcare staff. Um, So this includes increasing the maximum sentence for assault against emergency workers from 12 months to two years imprisonment. It also wants verbal abuse against emergency workers to carry a heavier punishment. And GP leaders have asked for a comprehensive national violence reduction strategy to educate the public and support NHS staff. So overall, from the from the letter to the health secretary, um, the BMA wants the government to sort of come out and offer a stronger defence of general practice. And it also um, wants it to stop endorsing uh, a narrative which scapegoats GP, which was which was a quote in the in the document. But as you said, there was also a second request for a meeting with the BMA GP committee, which was to discuss concerns about um, an unprecedented rise in workload and to explore what sort of things could be offered to practices and staff staff um, as they enter a busy autumn winter period. Well, yeah, talking of workload, that sort of leads us on to our second topic. Um, This week, COVID-19 boosters got underway in primary care 
And it looks set to be another huge task for general practice in the coming weeks and months. Nick, can you just explain the scope of this part of the vaccination programme? Yeah, there, there was some doubt for a while over whether the booster campaign would go ahead and if so, what its scope would be, because a member of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation suggested earlier this year that perhaps the top ups uh, wouldn't be necessary for anyone but the most at risk patients. But the committee has now backed a booster campaign for cohorts one to nine in the original COVID-19 vaccination campaign. So that covers over 50s, health and social care staff and patients in a range of at-risk groups. It's about 14 million people in England and 17 million in in total UK-wide. This has come alongside an announcement that jabs will be rolled out to 12 to 15-year-olds via a school vaccination campaign. And it also follows a decision to offer a third dose as part of the primary vaccination schedule to people who are immunocompromised when they received earlier doses. So the end is not in sight just yet as regards COVID jabs. As we've sort of alluded to, this has massive workload implications um, and the BMA has also called for some changes to make room for this work. What can you tell us about that, Luke? Yeah, so yeah, the sort of workload is, is huge at the minute. Um, so last week, the BMA demanded an immediate quaff suspension with income protection. Um, and that's just to allow GPs to focus on rolling out the, the COVID-19 booster campaign. Um, so the BMA recognises that there's going to be huge, um, huge pressure on on practitioners and um, and staff within uh, within surgeries. So in terms of workload and pressure on primary care during the autumn and winter period, um, GPs are quite worried that they might see an influx in flu cases, just as last year with everyone sort of indoors and isolating, there weren't many many cases or definitely weren't as many cases as what um, you would expect in in a normal year. Um, And a senior government vaccine advisor admitted in June that flu could be a bigger problem than COVID um, in the winter in the UK this year. So obviously one thing that would clearly help practices to better manage this massive increase in work um, that they've experienced over the past 12 months is more GPs and more staff, which brings us on to the additional roles reimbursement scheme. The scheme is a key plank of the five-year GP contract, which began in 2019, and it's aiming to recruit 26,000 additional full-time equivalent staff to primary care by 2024 via primary care networks. So this includes people like pharmacists, physiotherapists, paramedics, physicians associates and mental health workers, among others. The ARRS uh, effectively funds the salaries of staff that are recruited. And then this funding has increasing year on year and it's set to be worth £1.4 billion in 2023-24. But is the scheme actually making a difference? Luke, you've been looking at this this week. What, what have you been finding out? So from looking at CCG reports, we found that tens of millions of pounds went um, potentially unclaimed in the last financial year as PCNs were unable to recruit for a variety of reasons and um, and sort of get hold of this, of this fund. So in one example, a group of CCGs in the South indicated that they were expected to underspend um, by almost two thirds of their allocation for 2020-21, which is a really significant um, proportion of money. But underspend was common in in other areas of the country as well, um, with CCGs reporting underspends of anywhere between sort of 20 to to 50 percent of of those that we were able to get um, access to, to documents. And one of the main reasons for networks struggling to use their allocations uh, was quite simply just the pandemic. So teams were incredibly stretched over the last year and a half, and there just hasn't been the time nor the headspace to keep up a recruitment campaign. And one of the 
BCG has described this perfectly by just admitting that there wasn't an appetite for recruitment while uh, there was so much going on. Another reason for slow recruitment was a lack of available staff um, to actually recruit. So in some areas, there just aren't the numbers out there um, for people to hire. So all of this means that PCNs are missing out on bringing in extra bodies um, into general practice to help counteract the current GP recruitment crisis. But it's also important to point out that it's a bit of a mystery at the moment um, what happens to this unspent funding. Yeah, I was just going to ask you where the money where the money goes if no one's used it. Where is it? Is it just sat <laughs> yeah, in the bank exactly. somewhere? <laughs> your, your guess is as good as mine. No, um, so NHS England has previously said that um, underspends can be shared within CCGs and given to other networks within the CCG to spend who are able to to recruit but for that money that isn't spent even within the ccg we don't really know at the minute where it's going to go where it has gone we know that it can't be used um next year so this is something that we're currently looking looking into and maybe one extra point to highlight here is also that the staff that are coming in they they potentially won't have an immediate impact on reducing workload just because clinical directors have told us that it takes time and work to embed these staff and train them up so we may not see the fruits of um of this initiative for a little while yet the NHS 3% pay rise, which the government announced earlier this year, has also had an impact on recruitment through the scheme, hasn't it, Nick? Yeah, so another factor that GPs are concerned about with the additional role scheme is that that 3% pay rise for NHS workers hasn't been factored into budgets for this financial year. PCNs have been told they can offer pay rises to reflect the increase and that new staff can be offered the higher rates of pay. But overall recruitment funding for each PCN hasn't changed, so the money just won't go as far. Given what Luke's explained about the fact that many areas are struggling to use the full extent of their budgets, this may have a limited impact in in some areas, but it could penalise areas where recruitment is going well. I'm delighted to be joined now by GP and menopause specialist Dr Louise Newson. Louise is the Director of Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre in Stratford-upon-Avon and also a founder and trustee for the Menopause Charity, a charity she set up this year with the aim of empowering women with evidence-based knowledge and helping to educate doctors about the menopause. Louise has also developed a menopause information website for women, menopausedoctor.co.uk, and a free app called Balance to help women negotiate the symptoms of the menopause. Her new book, Preparing for the Perimenopause and Menopause, became a Sunday Times number one bestseller at the start of September, just a week after it was published. Along with aiming to raise awareness among women, she's also lectured at conferences and events for doctors and is involved in research around the menopause. She's recently taken on a role as an advisor to NHS England for their National Menopause Programme. Thanks for joining us, Louise. Oh, thanks, Emma. It's great. Thank you for inviting me. I was wondering if we could talk a bit about your journey from GP to menopause specialist. Why did you make that move and, and how did you go about doing it? It's really interesting because I don't have a one-year, three-year or even five-year plan. And if someone had met me or I'd met myself 10 years ago and I'd been told that I'd be doing what I'm doing, I would have said, don't be ridiculous. How can you fill up your career and your life thinking about the menopause? So I, as, as you might know, I've got a background of hospital medicine, actually. I never really wanted to be a GP. I wanted to be a hospital physician. I've also got an immunology and pathology degree. So I'm very interested in the study of disease. So I went through my medical training, went through my postgraduate training, got both parts of MRCP. And then I had to make a real decision about my career. But I was married at this time to my long-suffering husband, who I met in Freshers Week when I was 18. And he's a surgeon. And I just thought, actually, it was at a time where it's very hard to be part-time as a 
female or, or male indeed. So I decided to go into general practice. You know, this was in 1999, 2000, and general practice was hard then, and it's obviously got so much harder. And I loved being with patients, but I felt frustrated that I wasn't doing enough for some of them. And I then became part-time because I was very fortunate to have children. And I, I think I then actually was approached by GP magazine because I'd been awarded distinction in the uh, exam. And someone from GP contacted me and said, would you like to write about what it's like to get distinction or whatever? And I said, yeah, that would be great. And then I think I pestered someone and said, actually, I'd really like to do a series writing about evidence-based medicine. And then I decided to put it in a book. But then I also realized that Patients didn't know what a lot of information was. So I started to do a lot of work for, then it was patient.co.uk and now it's patient.info and did some lots of patient information writing. And I, that's how I supplemented my career really. As, so I did one day a week as a GP in the end when I had three children and life got very chaotic and absolutely loved it. But then I did all this medical writing and I felt it was a real privilege because it was almost like I was being paid to be kept up to date. So why the menopause? I've always really enjoyed doing menopause care. It's transformational medicine because you're helping the women, you're helping their symptoms because you're treating the underlying cause. But also I know that I was improving their future health because I've read so much that we know women who take HRT have a lower risk of really important diseases, so heart disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, dementia, so I was rubbing my hands with glee when I saw perimenopause and menopausal women, because I thought there's very few things in, in medicine, especially in general practice, where women or men or children come back and say, thank you, you've changed my life. But this was happening a lot in menopause. But at the back, I was with quite a big partnership and the partners were telling me off for prescribing HRT and saying, you shouldn't be doing this because it's dangerous. It's going to give them breast cancer. I said, it's not actually, you should read the evidence. They said, we haven't got time, but we know it's dangerous. You shouldn't be doing it. So I'd put people on HRT. They would take people off HRT. The women would come back to me. And I was really getting very frustrated, as you can imagine. But then in 2015, the NICE guidance came out, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence Guidance, for the diagnosis and management of the menopause. And this was really pivotal, actually, because actually it represents everything that I'd been saying and writing about um, for the last sort of the previous 10 years or so. And then the year after, the International Menopause Society guidance came out. And I thought, right, this is great. So I can really hold my head up, but my my partners didn't want to learn. The local CCG didn't want to learn. They kept pushing me back. So I went on some training, did some more. And then I decided to write the website, as you say, Menopause Doctor, because when I Googled menopause and HRT, it was coming up of heart disease, breast cancer, terrible risks all the time, nothing about benefits. So I thought, well, if no one else is doing it, I'll do it then. And so I decided to start writing. Meanwhile, experiencing some of my own perimenopausal symptoms, which in hindsight was so obvious that I thought it was because I was working too hard. Um, and then I started to really want to do more. And I went to two different CCGs. I went to quite a few different big multi-centre GP practices and said, I'd really like to do a, do a clinic. They said, there's no funding. You can't do it. So I went to our local gynaecology department. They said, the only clinic we have is once a month on a Monday. And that's the day I did my general practice. So I couldn't work there either. So my mentor said to me, we'll set up a private clinic. And I said, I don't want that. I do, really don't want to do private medicine. I've never, ever wanted to because I work for the NHS. And she said, well, it's the only way you'll be able to help people. So I thought I'll do one day a week. 
And I did that. Um, and after about six weeks, I was getting busier and busier. And women were just contacting me from all over the country saying, I'm really struggling. I can't work. I have had a, my ovaries removed 20 years ago. And since then, I've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, depression, anxiety, recurrent migraines. My life's terrible and no one's given me hormones. So I just thought I had no idea because I was in my bubble as a GP. I just helped the people that saw me. So it's just sort of stemmed from there, actually. You started the menopause charity this year. Can you sort of explain a bit about the charity and what you're hoping to achieve with it? A lot of my work is about trying to reach as many women as possible. And um, someone I work with and respect, who's a really good mentor of mine as well, Marcus Daly, said to me, when I opened the clinic three years ago, slow down, Louise, because you can't help every woman. And when someone says can't, it's like, of course I can. I can just do it in different ways. Um, and so now the, the clinic's massive. It's the largest menopause clinic in the world, but it's only the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing. So the app obviously is to try and help people. But the missing part is a charity and there isn't a good menopause charity. And I really want it to be able to reach as many women, and I'm very conscious of women who are really missing out on the menopause. So women from socioeconomic classes, different socioeconomic classes, ethnic groups, people with language problems, um, women in different countries. And I thought it would be really good to have a charity that's led by what women want and need and also what men want and need. And um, one of the things that isn't available for people is a helpline. Um, somewhere people can phone up and have someone who's acting as an advocate for them to help guide them. And it's a huge amount of work funding and setting up a charity. But we've got there. We've just recruited a new CEO who's very experienced. And I'm really hopeful that it's going to be really a very important charity, actually. It's crazy there isn't a, a menopause charity. We've had a lot of interest. We've got some great um, ambassadors and supporters and loads of people who really want to um, volunteer and help. And I think there's something isn't there about women helping women. It's really quite emotional. And, you know, I don't want to get too sad, but the suffering for women who are neglecting their own hormones is immense. As part of your work, and it's, it's sort of linked to the charity as well, you've, you've been very involved over your career in educating GPs and hospital doctors and other healthcare professionals about the menopause. Do you think there's real gaps in the education that healthcare professionals receive about the menopause when they're training? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wish I'd say it got better, but I'm not sure that it really has. Certainly, you know, I as an undergraduate, I had just told it, of course, a few hot flushes, really. Um, even when I did obstetrics and gynecology for six months, I didn't don't remember doing anything there. If training as a GP, nothing at all. So all my learning has been self-directed. Um, I am an advanced specialist in the British Menopause Society. It's quite hard because people have been really scared of HRT, so therefore they don't know how to prescribe it. So we're getting better at diagnosing it because women are telling us as GPs, they're saying, I am perimenopausal or menopausal, and obviously our app is helping with that. But then GPs think, oh, no, I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to say. There's too much in the BNF. You've put together some training for doctors and health professionals called Confidence in the Menopause. Can you tell me a bit about that? We filmed actresses, um, including my mother, actually, who's the older person, (laughs) um, showing them how in 10 minutes you can really transform someone's life and you can give them information, you can act in an evidence-based way and prescribe HRT safely. 
and it's all remote, so it's linked to the evidence. There's lots of links to the current evidence, the papers, the guidelines. Um, you can stop and pause the videos and you can fast forward to pertinent bits. There's lots of lectures on there as well. There's ability to feedback as a community. We're doing this in conjunction with 14 Fish, who, as you know, are very good with appraisals. We've given it for free, and this is one of the things that Charity launched when it started, announced that we would give one free course to every GP, actually. Um, and I thought maybe there'd be a few hundred that would be interested. This was about four months ago after Davina's programme. And our figures yesterday were more than 14,000 have downloaded it. That's great. Really good, isn't it? But it also reflects and shows that healthcare professionals want more information. They're not downloading it because it's free and they want to just watch something. They want to learn and they really want to help women, um, which is great. So actually from this month, from September, we have announced that it's going to be free for any healthcare professional, not just in the UK, but worldwide as well, because I think if it's free, more people will access it and then more women will get help, which will make me feel happy. <laughs> I didn't realise that you were going to make it free for everyone. I think that's that's brilliant. Is there still a lot of controversy around HRT in medical circles? Are there still a lot of doctors who um, are confused about the evidence around HRT? Yeah, definitely. But I think I think that the noise is changing. The narrative is changing. You know, when I opened my clinic three years ago, most days, but at least once or twice a week, I would have a email or a letter or a phone call from a healthcare professional really being very rude saying what are you doing this is awful I refuse to prescribe HRT for my patient you should never have started it and some of the the messages were very threatening actually and to the extent I wanted to give up but now actually people are saying gosh if if Dr Louise Newsom's doing that or her clinic's doing that then it must be right and so I think it's very hard, though. I understand it because what I'm trying to do is change people's perceptions of something that they've been told something different about. The other thing is it's really hard because when we prescribe HLT, it will come up with a warning of all the risks, including breast cancer. Yet we know that body identical HRT has never been shown to have a statistically significant increased risk of breast cancer and estrogen on its own has a lower risk of breast cancer associated with it. And so I can completely understand until that changes, there's still going to be resistance by some people. So hopefully the work that we're doing with NHS England will really make a big difference to that. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing with NHS England? What does that role involve? Yeah, so the NHS England have launched a national menopause programme in response to the inadequate menopause care. And actually also that we know about 14% at most receive HRT, yet the NICE guidance say the majority of women would benefit. So there's real inequalities of care, um, but the people I'm working with are very, very high level in the NHS. And I'm hoping that um, it's going to you know, start and snowball so what we're trying to do is look at ways of educating healthcare professionals, ways of safe HRT prescribing. Um, and it's all very positive, actually. It's going to take a little while because it's got to be done properly, um, but it's going to be really important. And one of the big things we're trying to address is this inequality of care. We know that women from low socioeconomic classes are 29% less likely to receive HRT. Yet these are women often who have a higher risk of obesity, cardiovascular disease, depression. So they're more likely to benefit from HRT, actually. 
So we're trying to look at that, but also we know that at least 40% of the NHS workforce are menopausal women. So we know from studies that around 20% of women stop working because of their menopausal symptoms. So 20% of 40% is a huge number when you think about the NHS, which is such a big employer. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually, because um, there's a survey that the BMA did and it showed that loads of female doctors, including GPs, were cutting back their hours, stepping back from leadership roles and even quitting medicine altogether because of symptoms of the menopause. And 90 percent of 2000 doctors who responded to that poll said that their symptoms had impacted on their working lives. And I'm sure, obviously, the statistics would be the same for nurses and any other health profession as well. What what do you think the NHS and GP practices, you know, GPs as employers, what do you think they need to to do to provide better support for women experiencing the menopause? It's, it's really sad, that study, because no one really picked up on it. And um, there is a real recruitment crisis in general practice as well. Um, yeah. So I think it's about employers making it easy to access information, actually. Um, it, there's a lot of talk about employers doing a lot more for the menopause. And my sort of pushback is we don't have a broken arm policy, because if someone who worked for me came in with their arm hanging at a weird angle and in pain, I would just tell them to the nearest A&E and tell them to sort their arm out and then come back and you can carry on working. With the menopause, we shouldn't be saying to women, reduce your hours, have flexible working, because that's less pay, that's less identity, that's less promotion. What we should be doing is saying, these might be related, these symptoms, you know, download the free app balance, get some information, recognise it, and then this is the nearest clinic, this is where you should get help, read some information. We just um, did a study, actually, through my not-for-profit of 3,900 women, and we found that 59% of women had taken time off work um, and 18% had taken more than eight weeks off work because of their menopausal symptoms. And 50% of those women resigned or took early retirement because of their perimenopause or menopause. Um, And around 20% had just stopped trying to get a promotion at work. Um, And it's no surprise, actually. It's really no surprise, but it's just awful, actually. And even talking from personal experience, I was really struggling with my memory. I'm always bad with names, but that's just a, a thing. But I was couldn't remember the names of drugs. I couldn't remember what a patient was telling me. I couldn't even word find very well. And I was incredibly exhausted. So this is me working one day a week as a GP. So if someone had said to me, reduce your work, well, how can you reduce from one day a week? I would have had to have given up my work and my career. And I was very muddled and angry and full of migraines and just full of apathy. I couldn't be bothered to do anything. So if I hadn't got access to HRT, which I couldn't get from my NHS GP, I would have had to just leave work and I think my husband would have left me and I wouldn't be a good mother for my children. So this is me as a middle-class woman with access to help and education. So I can see every clinic, I see women who have given up their jobs, whose partners have left them, a lot of them are suicidal. And it shouldn't be this hard just to get your own hormones back, really. It has felt there's been a a bit of a shift in the last year or so about discussing the menopause. And obviously, I mean, you've obviously been really one of the driving forces behind that. I mean, I mm. watched that Davina McCall documentary on Channel 4, which you were on as well. Um, 
And, you know, I really thought it was pretty groundbreaking. It really smashed down some taboos, you know, talking about things like vaginal dryness on a primetime TV, you know, things that a lot of people don't really understand the impact that those things have on women. You know, and also, obviously, the success of your book shows, you know, there's a lot of appetite for information out there. Do you think things are starting to change? So I think it is less of a taboo. And it's really good that the conversation's opening up. I think what we're trying to do, or certainly what I'm trying to do, is not even think about it as a women's health problem, but think it as a global health problem, actually, and something that does affect all women, but also men indirectly as well. And I think also if we look at it as a health risk, so it's a long-term hormone deficiency with health risks rather than something that causes a few symptoms which may or may not affect a woman, then it's very different. And I think when I sort of lecture healthcare professionals and I'll say, well, actually there's more benefit for cardiovascular risk reduction taking HRT than there is taking aspirin or statin, they go, wow, I had no idea. That's incredible. And I didn't know that until I looked at the, the stats. But actually, HRT also reduces risk of diabetes, obesity, everything else, which a statin won't do. Um, so, and it's cheap. It's dirt cheap. So, um, do you know what? I wish 20 years ago someone had taught me about the menopause because I have missed thousands of women because I've never thought about it because no one taught me. So it's, it, it's no one's fault, but I think we need to move forwards more than we are. Just one final question. If you could give a GP or a nurse or any healthcare professional that's listening to this one key bit of advice about what they should do or how they should help, how they can best support women who come to see them who are suffering from the menopause, what would you what would you say to them? I think there's two things really, actually, because um, I think about it a lot because I realise in general practice half, you know, 10 minutes is nothing, is it? Or 20 minutes if they're a nurse. I think there's two things. Firstly, it's about empowering the women and then being prepared. So obviously my book is called Preparing for the Perimenopause and Menopause. Let women who are your patients do the work. We do it for other diseases, for diabetes, for asthma. It's about self-directed learning, isn't it? And it's about shared decision-making. We can't share a decision if our patients aren't empowered. So get them to download the free app. There's a health report they can generate from it. And that can be used for the first 30 seconds of the consultation. Then you've got the diagnosis there. If the woman then is empowered, you can have some very easy conversations about what type dose HRT lifestyle is really important, everything else as well. And then you can just move forward with it. Thanks so much to Louise for talking to me. You can find a link to the education programme for GPs, nurses and other health professionals that Louise mentioned in the description of this podcast. We've also put a link in there to the menopause charity and to a webinar that Louise did with our sister site, MIMS Learning, last year and a learning module she wrote for MIMS Learning about the nice menopause guidance. So finally, we have time for our regular good news section. This week, we're talking about steps to tackle climate change, aren't we, Luke? Yes. Um, so some good news. I think we all need it. Um, so a PCN in Cornwall, um, Falmouthham Penry PCN, has invested in a fleet of electric cars to carry out their day-to-day or some of their day-to-day operations, um, such as home visits and delivering prescriptions. So the switch to electric vehicles replaces the PCN's previous business mileage scheme, which saw practitioners operating private heavy diesel vehicles um, before being reimbursed for their travel. And it just means basically that their carbon dioxide emissions from vehicles uh, will be completely reduced, um, helping the network to deliver its long-term drive to lower um, their overall carbon footprint. So um, you might say it's really good news for everyone involved. That's really terrible. 
So that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice from our website at gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and also to Dr Louise Newson for speaking with me this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at GPOnlineNews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.